Coming up this hour, we're going to talk about the Ministry of Encouragement and then a really uplifting clip from Andy Stanley. You're listening to The Common Good. Friends, welcome to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Thanks for joining us on this Wednesday. Ian, I only call it Wednesday now. It's just Wednesday. Uh, It's good to be together today. A little bit later, we're going to be joined by David Hayward, otherwise known apparently as the Naked Pastor. So we're excited to talk to him. Uh, But Mr. Simpkins, how are you today? Meh. (laughs) Just... That's that's very descriptive. The funny thing is that is the shortest description you could give, but when everybody hears it, they go, oh, I totally get that. Oh, yeah. Everyone gets meh for sure. How do you spell meh? Like if you were to text that out, how would you spell it? Oh, that's certainly M-E-H. M-E-H, right? Yeah. Yeah. And and I've seen other spellings and it feels like, listen, I don't want to tell you how to live your life, but I don't think that's correct. (laughs) Not only are you meh, but you're spelling it wrong. (laughs) Right. I'm going to add to your madness. All right, so here's how I want to start today. Uh, Oftentimes, we will take the first segment and uh, do a lot of the news of the day, kind of rapid fire. We're going to go a little rapid fire here, but you put up, you know, kind of behind the scenes here, we've got this Google Doc that you and I just flood with with articles, and well, maybe this would be fun to talk about. Maybe this would be fun to talk about. And I was going through yours last night, and there were I found three that were just ridiculous. And I'm like, we're starting with those. (laughs) Uh, So there are three in a row. And uh, I will let you choose which one to start with. Wait, why Why are you calling them ridiculous? I mean ridiculous. I, I, it's funny you called me out there because I was like, they're not ridiculous. They were just funny. And actually, I read all of them and I was like, what? What is this? <laughs> so uh, so not ridiculous as in like they can't be true. But like I was like, you've got to be kidding me. I think people will get what I mean as you read them. Well, I think I think this one is fascinating. So out of uh, ESPN, breakdancing gets Olympic status to debut at Paris Games in 2024. Just as a, an aside, the thought of like the Olympics happening again brought me some yes. joy. Like it just feels like, you know, it's been a year of canceled festivals and concerts and all that. So to even like see it in writing like, oh, that's right. Hopefully by 2024, we'll be having Olympics again. So it says breakdancing became an official Olympic sport on Monday. The International Olympic Committee's pursuit of urban events to lure a younger audience saw street dance battles officially added to the medal events program at the 2024 Paris Games. Also confirmed for Paris by the IOC executive board were skateboarding, sport climbing and surfing. I actually kind of can't believe that surfing wasn't already in there for some reason. I don't know why I think that, but uh, I, ha- I obviously, maybe it's not obvious, not a good dancer, but I have a, a, a number of friends who are, who are actually really talented break dancers and to like see like the blood, sweat and tears, the, the artistry, the athleticism that goes into it. I'm, I am really interested to see this uh, at, a, at an Olympic level. Yeah, it will be fascinating. Uh, so I'm going to show my age here and I'm asking this not sarcastically, but a real thing. I didn't actually know break dancing was still a thing. And uh, that, again, is showing how old I am. Obviously, I grew up in the 80s and 90s and breakdancing, you know, was all big in the 80s. You're off. You you could be my cultural touch point here. Is breakdancing still a thing or what's going on here? I I would. That's what was my biggest surprise when I read this. No, Brian, it's not a thing. And uh, the Olympic Committee just reached into something that doesn't (laughs) They went the way back machine. (laughs) Right. So if anyone's a time traveler. uh, No, yeah, it's, it's absolutely still a thing. 
And I'm fascinated to watch. I will totally watch this when it's an Olympic sport. And I'm fascinated to know how do they judge breakdancing? How do they, is it all subjective? Uh, my wife is a big fan of shows like how, uh, So You Think You Can Dance and those, all those dance shows. So I'm picturing it kind of the same way. But uh, yeah, that's a fascinating one. Okay, go for number two. Which one do you want to go with next? Well, former Israeli space security chief says aliens exist. Humanity, not ready. <laughs> Uh, this, quote, Galactic Federation has supposedly been in contact with Israel and the U.S. for years, but are keeping themselves a secret to prevent hysteria until humanity is ready. Uh, that just seems unlikely. Not the aliens part, but preventing hysteria. <laughs> <laughs> like, we we as a people lose our minds if Best Buy knocks $20 off a TV. I don't know that we're ready to handle the existence of aliens yet. What, what you called this one, uh, I'm assuming that you, you don't buy this one here at the Jerusalem Post. So a couple different thoughts when I read this for the first time. My first thought, a little bit like what you just said, was I have, uh, I really doubt the ability of multiple countries to have kept this a secret for 30 or 40 years, right? That this actually exists. Now, what does give me pause is that this is one of the most respected uh you know, guys in this field that there is. <laughs> this guy's been around forever. This is not just some kind of uh, just some kind of crazy guy. So when I did read it, I was like, "Wow!" Uh, but but I, I I'm landing on he's like 80 and he's going. I'm just going to mess with people right now. But hmm. he said this was kind of behind Donald Trump's uh, why Trump started Space Force, uh, which is now the fifth branch of the U.S. Army. But uh, to allow ourselves to just even to even believe that this could be true, this would be like the greatest uh, kept secret in the history of humanity that there's been contact with aliens for 30 years and nobody knows about it. Uh, do you think that there, what percentage of a chance do you give to this being true? Oh, who even cares what percentage of a chance I would give this? I have no idea. I don't, I don't, I haven't, uh, it's been a minute since I've heard someone make a theological case either for or against. I feel like when I was in high school, that was happening a lot more. <laughs> Maybe that was just based on what I was reading or where I was hanging out. I, it's, I'd be curious to know if some theologian listening w wants to weigh in on uh, the probability or impossibility of, of something like that. Uh, can you think of a time where somebody was making a, a, a doctrinal case for or against even like the pursuit of seeking life off earth? Hmm. I can't. I mean, people will. Oh, I've heard people talk about, hey, this world's bigger. You know, it's beyond our imagination. So, of course, there could be life out there. I've just I've never heard a great case for it. But I will say that the guy who said this, the 80 year old uh, Israeli uh, former uh, in charge of the Galactic Foundation or whatever it was, is selling a book right now. So those might be tied in together a little bit. But, mm. hey, th this would be crazy. The last one you did. Uh, I will read this one out of China. China is rolling out an enormous weather modification system. This week, the Chinese government announced that it plans to drastically increase its use of technology that artificially changes the weather. Cloud seeding technology or systems that can blast silver molecules into the sky to prompt condensation and cloud formation has been around for decades, and China makes frequent use of it. But now CNN reports that China wants to increase the total size of its weather modification test area to 5.5 million square miles by 2025, which is larger 
than the entire country of India, which could have the effect uh, on the environment on an epic scale and even potentially spur conflict with nearby countries. I'm just, I, I have nothing to say about this except to say, I had no idea even something like this existed. And, that, and to be able to change the weather, man, I don't, I don't even know what to make of this. What do you make of this one from the Chinese government? Uh, well, I mean, the facts are a little cloudy, Brian. Yeah. But... <laughs> nice to, way to start to, the day with a pun. To my precipitation, I think that it's an interesting. <laughs> Keep going. <laughs> I don't want to rain on slope. your parade. A slippery slope for sure, though, Brian. A slippery I, I am struggling to find. Wait, oh, this one would only work in writing. I want to make a joke about. Um, aren't one of the? Is it one of the types of clouds? Serious clouds. Yes. Spell it. Uh, serious. Yes. Gonna, yeah, I was gonna say. I was gonna say seriously, but then that wouldn't actually translate to radio <laughs> at all. Would it? <laughs> Mike, we're no, really re- reaching back into like third grade, third grade uh, terminology now. We do not want to rain on your parade, but uh, that is that, that would that would be troublesome. So anyway, three crazy stories we thought we would start with the day with. We'll put these up on our Facebook page and you can uh, wrestle with them. Aliens changing the weather, uh, all sorts of different ones. So uh, well, hold on. Take a look at it's that. Not, it's not the aliens. aliens. <laughs> <laughs> Punctuation matters. There was, yeah, there was supposed to be a pause there. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe the aliens can change the weather. People tuning in right now, like, what happened to this show? What if I just string them together as aliens breakdancing, changing the weather? (laughs) (laughs) What if you did that, Brian? Well, we are off and running in a crazy way today. Coming up next, we're uh, going to get a little more serious. We'll talk at a uh, desiringgod.org, the surprising ministry of encouragement. That's coming up next year on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you joining us on this Wednesday afternoon. Before we jump into this Desiring God article, can you hear my dog barking? Do you, you hear my dog making an appearance right now? I uh, uh, I didn't want to say anything, Brian. I feel like I'm always the one that brings it up, and I was feeling yeah, like I did. But since you brought it up, yes, most certainly. I, I just felt the need to acknowledge it, just the need to acknowledge it, because it times out perfectly with when my wife leaves the house. And of course, then somebody walks a dog in front of our house and mm-hmm. all bets are off. So, yeah, my, you know, it's, uh, it's who's, who's more voices in the, in the show today. <laughs> it's, a, it's a weird bet. That's good. That is true. Well, at Desiring God, uh, we'll, we'll do often articles. We'll look up stuff at DesiringGod.org. Ray Ortland, uh, pastor out of Nashville. Uh, Ray Ortland wrote this, the surprising ministry of encouragement. And I found this interesting simply because as we've been talking about in the time of COVID, we're in such a time of discouragement. So many people feeling discouraged and maybe many of you out there, you're in your cars right now, you're at home and you're going, yeah, I I don't know this Christmas, but I don't feel much encouragement at all. I feel very discouraged because of ongoing COVID or maybe things going on in your life. Uh, that you're struggling to be encouraged and instead you're feeling great discouragement. I think we really understand that. And Ray Ortland here, I think, writes a very timely article uh, at Desiring God called The Surprising Ministry of Encouragement. Why don't you get us into this one? Well, it begins with a a really long biblical reference, 1 Thessalonians 5, 11, that says, encourage one another. <laughs> That's it. Uh, he says, does encouragement seem to you a good but small thing? To me, it's huge. I want to explain why I think this way, and I'd like to persuade you to join me. I appreciate at the very beginning, because like, let me just let me just tell you what I'm going to do with this article. I have <laughs> yes, never met exactly. anyone suffering from too much encouragement in Christ. Have you? 
I think about the ministry of encouragement a lot, but not as much as I should. My friend Murray Harris, the New Testament scholar, said to me once, encouragement is one of the most important ministries in the church of the New Testament. Our biblical authenticity is at stake here, whether we are overflowingly encouraging to one another. Encouragement is what the gospel feels like as it moves from one believer to another. The ministry of encouragement, therefore, isn't optional or just for people with a knack for it. Real encouragement has authority over us all. It deserves nothing less than to set the predominant tone of our churches, our homes, our ministries. So let's think it through, and then let's get after it. I'll stop there because I actually really like this premise. It's the kind of thing that I... I've felt really convicted by over the last probably a decade or so Hmm. to the point where like, again, you know, leave it to me to bring some nerdy brain science into it. But I I remember reading a couple of years ago and I shared this with our staff then that the brain is something like 12 times more likely to come up with a criticism than a compliment. Hmm. And the, the, this particular article's assertion was that by you know, intentionally encouraging one another, it like creates increased neuroplasticity in people. And it, and it actually has obviously like biochemical results. And the, the whole point though, was like, if left our own devices though, most of us will drift towards criticism and critique and to be a person of encouragement or compliment, I think is what the the article said requires like some really intentional effort. And I was like, Mm -hmm. Oh man, I, I totally, I totally feel that. Yeah. And I think that line encouragement is what the gospel feels like as it moves from one believer to another, Uh, That's a powerful line and and that it's not optional, this ministry of encouragement. But it does make sense, as you said, when you when you sit back and think about it, what are some of the things that are supposed to be foundational to a church? Right. And and one of those things is that uh, that as a community, as the the family of God that we talk about, that that we are to be encouraging one another, caring for one another in such a way uh, to support one another and encourage one another. Uh, And like you, I do love how he sets this up. He's like, let's think it through and then let's get after it. And so he's going to talk about what encouragement uh, looks like. But I do think that premise is great that uh, that 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 the church has an opportunity to one another and to the world around us to serve as an encouragement. When, like you said, there's so much discouragement around us. And as you said, from neuroscience, that that we are almost bent towards um, criticism and discouragement. He he, uh, defined it this way. He says, uh, the New Testament verb translated encourage can also mean to comfort, to cheer up, Mm -hmm. to console, to speak in a friendly manner. Throughout throughout, encouragement is about the life-giving power of our shared beliefs and shared life in the Lord. Jesus used the noun form of this verb when in John 14, 26, he called the Holy Spirit our helper. That is our encourager as, quote, an empowering presence among us. J.B. Phillips paraphrased this title of the Holy Spirit as, quote, someone to stand by you. And I'm I might be speaking out of turn here, but I think the I think the Hebrew word is azer, and it's the uh, I've heard it translated elsewhere as like warrior. So it's one of the things that like in Genesis, so often people cringe, you know, in Genesis one and two when the Bible talks about seeing Adam alone. He's like, oh, it's not good for me to be alone. I'll create a helper suitable for him. Helper has this in like to our modern ears, sort of this uh, almost denigrating tone. But mm-hmm. I think it's the same word. It's like, no, no, this is like a like a warrior. This is someone to like an empowering presence, someone to stand with you. And I I think that this I think this is exactly right. This idea that Jesus uses the same word to describe the Holy Spirit that the writer of Genesis does to describe uh the creation of woman to to stand with the man. To me, that all kind of comes full circle to like why encouragement is so necessary, like why yeah. it's so critical for us to not only be a people who offer it, but you know who have a capacity to receive it. 
Yeah. And then later on, uh, I love how he frames this. He says the quote, one another commands of the New Testament paint a picture of the beauty of human relationships. These one another's include not only encourage one another, but also love one another, welcome one another, confess your sins to one another and more. It's a total way of enjoying Christ together. Who wouldn't love to jump in at the same time? Have we noticed the one another's that do not appear in scripture, but sometimes appear among us? For example, scold one another, humble one another, pressure one another for starters. Why don't we all back up and relearn how to live together in Christ? And there are better, and, and is there a better starting place than encourage one another? The New Testament puts encouragement at the very foundation of real Christianity. It says in Philippians 2, cha- uh, chapter 2, verse 1. So if there is any encouragement, in Christ. I just love how he frames that around the one another's because uh, there, there is, and we've lost this in some ways, not altogether. And some churches do this great, but a lot of times, and you know, coming up in next segment, we're going to talk again about a little bit of how we do church with celebrity in this and, and what gets lost. Uh, the idea that we are in this together, we are one another, we are family, we are community, that we are uh, uh, spurring one another on. We're encouraging one another. We're praying for one another. I think uh, especially in this time of COVID where we're all separate. The church has to continue to work and continue to find ways to be uh, this one another uh, to one another. Yeah, I'm wondering why you think encouragement is so rare. My my experience, and people don't typically, I think, say it explicitly, but it seems like there is, in some circles, a, perva- a pervasive sense that if if I encourage you, though, like in your work, for example, if you know if you're in a position of leadership, if I encourage you too much, that's going to lead to laziness or that's going to somehow show that I don't care about excellence or that, uh, you know what I mean? Like that, it does sometimes feel like people feel like they're losing ground or giving up something by encouragements. And so they're stingy with it. And I'd, I'd be curious to know why you think sometimes people s- struggle to actually like live this out. Yeah. I, I think for one, uh, we live in a pretty critical culture, right? This is what we do. We, we do hot takes and we get each other. And I do uh, think like you said, uh, it's really weird, man. I, I know what you're saying. Like if we encourage other people, they might get lazy. That's kind of one of the thought process of your boss. Yet I know what encouragement does to me. When people mm-hmm. encourage me, it spurs me on. It, right, it totally. gets me going and I'm ready to go. So it does, uh, you bring up a good point because if that's what it does to me, why would we not be going at that for other people? Sometimes we're just so busy that we don't think about <laughs> how can I encourage one another? So with the last couple of seconds we have left, do you have an idea for that or uh, what's the takeaway? Let's go. Let's end it that way. What's the takeaway here for you and for the people who are listening? Oh, man, I was just talking about this with my wife last night, how when uh, when I was at my last church, one of the things that we would do to begin every staff meeting was uh, everyone could go around the table and nominate someone else uh, not in the room that kind of really went above and beyond in some, you know, big or small way. And then we would all write thank you cards to them. Mm-hmm. And, and And again, the irony is that the person that we gave it to was always like so over the moon, like appreciative, you know, they, they could have been someone that gave like an additional 80 hours of work and they're like, Oh my gosh, thank you for the card. And I'm like, you're, you're the rock star. You're the one that went way above and beyond. But the thing That's that right. it did for our culture as a team was that begin, you know, beginning meetings with like gratitude and appreciation and encouraging someone else kind of really framed the rest of our discussion. So building that in, I'm a big fan of habits, you know, the stuff that you just make a regular part of your language and whatnot. And that was definitely one way that, we, we kind of helped cultivate a, a culture of encouragement. I, like I have staff meeting 
tomorrow. And I'm like, I'm going to do that. We're going to do, do something like this because it's I great. think it's, it's good little steps that we can take. Well, coming up next, uh, we're going to continue talking about churches. Uh, our old friend Rich Velotis wrote at Christianity Today, the celebrity pastor problem is every church's struggle. That's coming up next year on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. I hope you're having a great Wednesday, kind of looking towards the weekend. Uh, You know, it's kind of that hump that we get over, Ian, that gets us from the beginning of the week towards the end of the week. So that's why we enjoy Wednesdays. But I can feel uh, you smiling right now. (laughs) We're glad that you're with us. Uh, Each day we say, okay, this is the last time we're going to talk about celebrity pastors and celebrity churches and then how that affects churches, I should say. And then each day we come across yet another fabulous article about kind of the bigger problem. And so I did want to jump into this one out of Christian Today, uh, partially because it's from an author, I mean, a pastor who we and author who we've had on our show, uh, who you and I both think is phenomenal. We, you know, Twitter, his books, his sermons, uh, his name is Rich Velotis out of New York City, <clears throat> I believe is in Queens. And uh, we had Rich on a couple weeks ago, and he wrote this at Christianity Today. He wrote, the celebrity pastor problem is every church's struggle how our ministry policies and practices can push back against entitlement. Let me start us off here. It says, when I became pastor at New Life Fellowship, my pre- my predecessor, Pete, uh, I can read, Pete Scazzaro <laughs> told me, congratulations, you can't park in the church parking lot anymore. This shocked me since I came from a church where I saw all kinds of perks and special treatments for senior leaders. I wondered, shouldn't pastors have prime parking spots? Our church in Queens has a small lot, massive by New York City standards, but the point was was taken. Pastors aren't entitled to special treatment. They lead by serving. The parking lot lesson from Pete became one of my most important moments of character formation. Certainly, this culture of no parking can be taken to another extreme where pastors are not sufficiently cared for, encouraged, and supported. But it's important to push back against the temptations of entitlement that can come with church leadership. To be honest, Walking to the church building after circling and looking for parking is not fun. It gets pretty tiring, especially when it rains or snows. But I recognize how this policy reflects a broader church culture where pastors aren't celebrities deserving special treatment. As a pastor, I regularly think about my own entitled tendencies and the issue of entitlement in my ministry. The topic came up recently with the news of Carl Lentz's departure from Hillsong, New York. While his story also involves the painful extramarital relationship and drama therein, Lentz's rise and fall came in a context of a hip megachurch celebrity. Uh, A recent New York Times investigation described the church culture at Hillsong that, quote, seemed to go out of its way to uh, to cultivate a hierarchy of coolness and where Lentz, quote, both loomed large and was rarely present. His case is just one example prompting all of us in the church to look more closely at how entitlement has become normalized in our churches and what we can do to address it. I'm going to pause there. That introduction is fabulous. Uh, but Ian, this this idea of entitlement, I love his idea about parking. The first church I worked at at Glen Ellen Bible Church, uh, we had a small parking lot in downtown Glen Ellen, and it was made very clear, nobody on staff on Sunday morning can park in the parking lot. Just right. get as far away as you can go. And that might seem like a small thing, uh, but I do think the church began to notice. Why don't you talk about just from your experience of leading churches, being a community, kind of the difference of perspective between uh, pastors and leaders that are entitled and kind of held up uh, and venerated versus those that are uh, taking it from kind of a posture of serving. 
Yeah, I, I mean, I appreciate the introduction because we, we have a, a similar kind of policy. You know, at community, at least at the Yellow Box, we have uh, two different parking lots. And the sort of back lot, as a lot of people sort of see it as, is, you know, really, really long. So there's usually still space to park, but we we encourage, you know, staff and, and especially people in uh, like executive leadership to park in the way, way back. And then on, you know, days that would normally be um, even even more of an issue, like on Christmas Eve or Easter, we have uh, we work on a deal with a school across the street to you know for everyone on staff to park over there so we make it very very clear even for like marathon days you know like we would do like a sort of pseudo sunrise service on easter which means if you're getting there for sound check and rehearsal that you're getting there you know before the sun comes up and we're still saying hey if if you're a part of any of those teams go park at this school and it's not a long walk but it's a little bit of a walk and i Mm -hmm. even even just that distance to me is like such a good i i was like envisioning that as he was talking about you know, walking in snow or rain. And, and I appreciate him saying like, yeah, it's, I'll admit it, it's not fun. Like it would be right. great to have a prime spot right next to the building, but that's the whole point. Like the, the hierarchy of coolness doesn't just happen. Like that's cultivated over time. And in the same way, you know, if you want to counter that, it can't just be, well, we taught on it one Sunday or we put mm-hmm. it in the bulletin or whatever. Like, no, it has to, it's a soil you have to till and it can't just be it can't just be rich or Pete getting it like you have to you have to kind of drip that vision to, to your entire leadership. And that and that takes time. Yeah. And I, I appreciate his perspective here. It does also um, it's, it's it's amazing the articles you picked today, because this is another thing my wife and I were talking about last night. And mm-hmm. that I don't think this is limited to big churches either. I, I've uh, seen at all. Churches, churches big and small really struggle, not only with kind of the hierarchy of coolness, but like a sort of insulated senior leader who's untouchable and no one can speak right. truth to. And I don't, I think certainly bigger churches have some unique uh, obstacles there, but I don't think it's at all limited to big or small churches. Yeah. I think uh, big churches, I think have a temptation. You would know this better than I, where you've got a big stage and a lot of people recognize you around town or at the church, right. but the small church, which I'm in a smaller, medium sized church right now. Uh, the difference is like you're in a culture where you have lots of staff so you guys can hold each other accountable, right? And you guys can kind of live this out together when you can kind of be on your own. Oh man, it's really dangerous. And I think we've Mm. seen this in a lot of churches that are small where where it's like the pastor rules over his kingdom, kind of big fish in a small pond. And uh, no, I think you're absolutely right about that. He goes on to say, scripture describes the special responsibilities pastors take on and says that those who lead the church well are quote, worthy of double honor. In some churches, though, pastoral entitlement masquerades as honor, certainly an ethos of honor, a desire for churches to bless their pastors and care well for them has the potential to correct unhealthy cultures that reduce pastors to human doings. Uh, mm. We have seen the ministry burnout and damaging consequences that can result when pastors are expected to be everything for the community without the adequate gifts of rest, support and recreation. A healthy culture of honor recognizes the emotional and spiritual weight pastors carry in shepherding a flock and seeks to create sustainable rhythms and policies and practical care for long-term flourishing. I just want to read this whole thing, but let me stop there. How would you differentiate, Ian, between uh, kind of the celebrity pastor getting special perks, but also this idea like we want to honor and bless and support our pastor? How would you separate those two? I think it really depends on, on the context. I think at the very least, recognizing that there are two different things is really important. Um, 
but like how you know different people groups or cultures or neighborhoods or geographical locate i mean the way honor looks in a local congregation i think certainly can differ based on the context but being being mindful though and i, I he later kind of quotes from um McKnight and Beringer's book, a uh, church called Tove. I like what they say here. Of course, celebrities don't form on their own. Behind every celebrity pastor is an adoring congregation that both loves and supports celebrity atmosphere. The development of a celebrity culture also doesn't happen overnight. I think those are really important distinctions. They don't, they don't happen on their own, and it doesn't happen instantly. So if you're not mindful uh, with some level of regularity saying, hey, is this honor or are we steering towards celebrity culture? Just – to say it out loud, like having giving, you know, leadership permission to raise those questions, I think is a really important local level work to do, because I don't know, sometimes you can just sort of swim in those waters without even realizing it's happening, especially if it's all you've ever known. Right. If you've if if your church has been steeped in maybe unhealthy celebrity tendencies, it can, it can be hard to kind of pick apart right. that ball of yarn like oh maybe this isn't helpful maybe this isn't actually honor maybe this is uh maybe this is toxic so yeah at the very least having those discussions i think is important and he says i'll close with this on the pastoral side right we've talked about the church culture but on the pastor side he says in their large congregation he says this predates him to past pastors he said they are a large congregation of over 1500 people every pastor must be available after services to be with the congregation even if just for 15 or 20 minutes yeah uh, just that action he says, speaks hugely. And he ends the article by his last paragraph. Here's the first one. It says, pastoral ministry must be marked by humility. So uh, yes. a fabulous article written by Rich Velotis. Uh, we just kind of jumped around it. So I'd encourage you to go to Christianity Today or go to our Facebook page. Uh, give it a read. Well, coming up next, uh, Andy Stanley had a video on Twitter yesterday that I just wanted to share some of the audio because I found it. Uh, it almost brought me to tears as I listened to it. I want you to hear this next year on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you with us today. So, Ian, we were just talking off air. I, I'm uh, As I age and as my kids get older, I find myself, do you, do you find this about yourself? I find myself getting more and more emotional with things I see on TV or online. Like, I never used to be a crier. Now I feel like I tear up and cry all the time. Uh, is, that, is that how you are or, or are you more, you know? Stone hearted. Which one? Which one are you? <laughs> Those are my only options. What if I? Those are your what two options. Always, what if I've always been a crier, Brian? You didn't even offer that as a possibility. No, no. I'm trying to think if I think you've always been a crier or not. I'm going to okay. guess no, but I do think there's a chance of yes there. <laughs> no, I, yeah, I'm. I am certainly more in uh, in line with your experience. And yeah, since becoming a dad, it is weird because sometimes it catches you off guard. Like I know that mm -hmm. it feels like a bit of a cliche. Like oh. I've heard so many, you know, a lot of my friends started having kids earlier than we did. So I've heard mm -hmm. them say similar things like, you know, I never used to really be a crier. Now I cry at everything. And you're like, okay, that seems strange. Your kids aren't that great. And then, and then you actually have, you know, kids of your own. And you're like, I totally understand it. It could be like, oh, it could be like man. a well-placed commercial. And I'm like, okay, that That's was right. 30 seconds of tear drinking genius. That's right. The, uh, my wife got about six months ago or so she got, it sits in our living room, one of those frame, uh, picture frames that just scrolls pictures, you know, so you download mm -hmm. pictures to mm -hmm. it. It just scrolls. Uh, and I told her the other day, I both love that frame and hate it because I will just stare at it. And it just runs all these pictures of my kids when they were little. And I'm constantly like, like you know, 
cats in the cradle is playing in, in my head and i'm just mm-hmm. like just I, I just find myself staring at it. also like 15 minutes has gone by and i'm having all these memories flood back and i'm like oh my gosh i'm a mess right now you probably and, look uh, really frightening to people in your house you're just standing there staring at a frame staring at this yourself like, is, is, is that okay it's all right i'll be like turned away from the tv just watching this frame scroll through it's just really blowing funny. your nose into your kerchief yeah oh my goodness i can i'll tell you what i never used to be that way but now I am. And, and one of the things you might be wondering, what are you talking about? One of these things I saw on Twitter yesterday, uh, Andy Stanley, uh, well-known pastor of, uh, of uh, North. Why am I forgetting the name? North Point? It's because you're, you're so emotional. Is that why? It's because I'm old. Is that what? Why am I forgetting? the? Is that what it is? Yes. North Point. Okay. Yes. I literally had the mo- like this brain lock going, what is Andy Stanley's church? Anyway, down outside of Atlanta, multiple campuses, Andy Stanley, uh, one of not only just the biggest churches in the country, but one of the most uh, well-known and well-thought-of pastors. Uh, and on Twitter, so he's his church is at meeting again, uh, doing just online stuff right now. And he was talking about legacy the other day. And he did a video in which he sat down and interviewed his father. So Andy Stanley's father is Charles Stanley, also equally well-known pastor, radio mm-hmm. host, ministry, uh, just a titan of of the Christian world over the last, you know, within the last century. If you make a list of who have been the most important people across the country, Charles Stanley is going to be on that list. And that's mm-hmm. Andy Stanley's dad. Uh, and so he interviewed his dad, uh, who I think just recently stepped down from his church, recently retired. Um and man, when I watched this, I found this to be not only powerful as a dad, uh, but also just emotional watching a kid, watching a kid, watching a son interview his dad. So let's listen to it. It's about a minute 40 long. Let's listen to it. And then I'd like for us to reflect upon it. So one of the, the mysteries to me that as a kid growing up, I didn't appreciate. But now that I'm a dad, um, I've appreciated so much because so, so much of what I've done as a father, I learned from you. But you didn't have a father to learn from. How did you figure this out? Well, my mom taught me several things that just drilled them in my head. She to obey the Lord, to read the scripture every day, even though I didn't understand it, and to do what I knew was the right thing to do. She, so she didn't take the Bible and say, well, memorize this verse or that verse. And the only time I remember her giving me a verse to remember is before I preached my first sermon. But I just saw her reading the Bible I watch, I listen to her pray, and I watched how she related to people. So I had a great respect for my mom being a godly woman. So then when you became a dad, were, how did you figure out the dad part? I mean, you'd, you'd seen your mom be a good mom, but you were such a great dad. How did you, how did you figure that out? Well, I treated y'all the way I wanted to be treated. I wow. think that says it all to me because not having a father, and thinking, what would I would like for my father to have done? So when I'm thinking of all the places we went, and I never worried about spending money on you all, just have a good time. In other words, um, it, it just came natural for me because I knew that's what a good that's what a good dad would do. All right, Ian, just the first time you heard it and, and saw this, what did you, what were just your takeaways or your emotions as you watched Stanley, Andy Stanley interview his dad? Well, before I get there, too, I should also mention that Charles Stanley uh, In Touch Ministries with Charles Stanley is on our very own station, Brian, Mondays, yes, Fridays, 1230 to 1, and then Saturday 
from 12, uh, 2.30 a.m. to 3 and then 5.30 a.m. to 6. So just wanted to wow. get that out, out there. Um, yeah, I think I think what's interesting to me is that, you know, both of these men are so known in their own right and so, you know, by, by most metrics, so established and for some people mm-hmm. kind of, kind of mm-hmm. almost household names. And you can sometimes forget like, oh, it's an actual father-son relationship. And if you've read any of their books, you know that they have had uh, choppy seasons, but there seems to be just like a right. real, like mutual affection and love. And the way that, you know, Charles talks about his mom and there's just a simplicity. I've heard Charles talk a couple of other times about, you know, topics like preaching or how to, you know, how to schedule your time. And he just has a, there's something about the way he answers questions that I find so refreshing and just like the the simplicity of, yeah, she, mom taught us to obey the Lord, read scripture, even if I don't understand it, right? Like there was <laughs> just like a, yeah, what, why do we overcomplicate it so much? That just seemed like such, I don't know, in a world of a lot of hot takes and clickbait, that just felt like a really refreshing, like, yeah, that's a much better starting point than maybe a lot of us tend to think. And just to see right. him kind of honor his mom and Andy to kind of talk to his father in what appears to be a, a you know pretty candid way, um, honoring his father. I just think I think that's always pretty wonderful. It feels like, you know, oftentimes the way the dads are depicted in you know cartoons and sitcoms, they're usually like the doofus of the family. And, that's right. You know, everyone's usually having like a little bit of a joke at their expense, and so at the very least to see you know Andy kind of honoring his dad, even though you know they've had their issues in the past, and I'm sure they don't agree on everything. That felt like uh, that was a refreshing change from what my newsfeed tends to look like. Absolutely. And and like you said, when he talks about his mom uh, and uh, the, the other part of that got me was to see Andy Stanley be able to sit with his dad and ask him, literally not ask him, how did you learn to be a dad? But then basically ask him, how are you able to be so good at this? Like to right. say to his own father, how did how were you such a good dad to me? I think had to be such a huge blessing for his dad. Uh, and at the same time, and then I just love his answer to that. And we'll close with this, that he answered, I just wanted to treat you the way I would want to be treated. And he's like, I, you know, I didn't worry about money with you. I spent on you. I I, I did uh-huh. what I thought a good dad would do. He just went, oh, that's the dad I want to be. Like, that's what I want to be as well. Yeah. And and so to see a son say, dad, why, how are you so good at this? Had to be great to hear as a dad. Uh, and and then to have him answer in, like you said, such a simplistic but powerful way, I thought was great. So if you haven't seen this clip, uh, I'd encourage you to go watch it because there is something to seeing their personal interaction, sitting there with each other as well. That's really powerful. Well, coming up next, uh, we're going to talk about the Christmas season in the midst of COVID and what a new poll found coming up next year on The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for your life. Coming up this hour, we're going to talk about loneliness at Christmas time. And then we're joined by David Hayward, the naked pastor. You're listening to The Common Good. Everybody, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Ian Simpkins. My name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you with us today. We're grateful for all of you uh, who do join us. Uh, Ian, I found this article. It's out of the UK, but it might as well also be written uh, we're going to deal with this in our country as well. Uh, kind of some new poll data looking towards Christmas. So we're in the midst of a pandemic. We all know this. 
Uh, everybody's trying to figure out, can I see family? Do I not see family? Uh, what What's the result of what happened at Thanksgiving? Uh, and, and, and as hard as it was not to see family at Thanksgiving, everyone's going, man, it's going to be that much harder to, yeah. to not be able to see family at Christmas time. I mean, Christmas time uh, and Thanksgiving are just times where you long to be with your family and be together. And so let me, uh, with that in mind, let me just read some of this. Okay. Uh, and then we'll talk about it. It says at least 1.7 million people are expected to spend Christmas Day alone, according to a new poll by The Observer. In a, quote, normal year, the figure would usually be around 4% of the United Kingdom. Like I said, this article is out of the UK. However, this year, because of the pandemic, that number is expected to be as high as 8%. The issue is particularly severe among adults age 64 and over. Uh, Luis Morse from the Pilgrim's Friends Society said this Christmas will be, quote, very difficult and very dark for the elderly, especially those aged over 80 and others who suffer from chronic disabilities. Only 23% of adults surveyed said they will spend Christmas with their parents this year compared to 65% at this time last year. And so there goes into more specifics or more statistics, but uh, problem in the UK, problem in the United States, this idea of especially the elderly, but all sorts of people, Ian, who who live alone, uh, whether it be in a nursing home or maybe they're just, they live alone in an apartment or whatever, uh, having to spend Christmas by themselves what do you think the result is especially for those uh, uh who will have to spend christmas by themselves what do you think that must be like i mean i have no idea i yeah i moved out of the house to go to college lived in a dorm after college got a house with a bunch of friends a bunch of roommates you know eventually got married so on a house with my wife and then had some you know like i grew up in a house of nine people like i just it's mm-hmm. i i don't even have a memory of living by myself and if i did even that would still be by choice you know that that would be the freedom to still go meet with people you know go grab mm-hmm. dinner to to make a plan like there's even there was even times when i was in college if i if i couldn't get back to detroit where you know families would would welcome college students into their home, you know, so that students yep. weren't alone, and we had a lot of international students that couldn't fly back home. So, um, again, knowing that this article is from the UK, I, I guess the numbers are, are probably still similar. I would probably still put it at probably double. I think you know if, if it's mm-hmm. typically four percent mm-hmm. as high as eight percent this year, I, I think we can probably assume the same is true here. So to think that double the people that are normally by themselves. Mm-hmm. Are, are having to be alone at a, a season that is already like I'm thinking of people who lost spouses this year mm. who who are facing the first Christmas without you know a loved one um again having never lost a spouse I I, I imagine like the thing that you'd want most in this world is to be surrounded yeah. by family like the people closest to you I don't know this is this is a this is a really this Sorry. is a heavy way to end the the hour but it just to me it was it was a really as exhausting as it can be to have a one and three year old in a pandemic, right? Like mm-hmm. just to be clear, like it's chaotic. A lot of times, like it's this thought has crossed my mind a lot. Like, man, at least, at least we have each other though, right now, at least we can actually, you know, see other humans throughout the space, the time of our day. And uh, this, this to me is something that I think we're, we're going to have to pay really close attention to. Cause I think it's going to be more than just, Oh, that's a bummer that I can't see. I think it's going to be a lot, a lot deeper than that. I absolutely agree with you. And uh, the article goes on to say, 
uh, th- this person Morse, who who uh, Luis Morse, who's talking about what can the church do, trying to call the church and Christians in the UK to action, said Morse wants to encourage Christians to get involved with campaigns to combat loneliness and to be proactively engaging with neighbors or people around us that might be feeling lonely. She said, it's finding out what's already there so you can take advantage of it and pray. Prayer is so powerful. Uh, We forget that when we come up with our human tactics. Pray about it. Pray that the vaccine will come quickly. Pray that the fast test will be here uh, so we'll know uh, because people want to touch each other this Christmas. They want to hug. So this idea, and it goes on to say there's a national campaign to combat loneliness backed by the Archbishop of Canterbury uh, in the UK that will start on the 14th of December and run through the 18th of January. But uh, when you hear even that encouragement, Christians get involved to help do something to help combat loneliness. My first thought is, what can we do? Uh, What is an opportunity uh, for us in our neighborhoods or maybe as churches or small groups? Does anything come to mind for you about what, uh, what Christ followers can be doing in this Christmas season to help the people that you described so well, who may have lost a spouse or just maybe living at home alone or maybe in a nursing home, anything come to mind as to what individuals or churches can be doing? Yeah, I think it's all the same stuff that we have been doing for ourselves. I think scheduling Zoom calls, random phone calls, writing a handwritten letter, sending a message. Like I, I've been amazed even just the impact of a text to someone like, oh, that person popped into my mind randomly. And that can feel weird, you know, be like, hey, I don't really have a reason for reaching out. I was just thinking about you. Um, I can tell you what, like I've been on the receiving end of messages like that before and they never feel weird. It always is like, mm-hmm. oh man, it's, I I think we sometimes get in our head like, ah, that'll be strange that I like highlight, you know, the fact that they're alone right now or that I'm thinking of them or maybe, maybe this is like a guy struggle. Like, oh, I don't want that to weird them out. It's never weirded me out. Maybe I'm weird. Not maybe, <laughs> I definitely am. But like there's a, there's, yeah, I don't know. There's, there's real power in, in just some kind of human connection with another person. And I think during a season where it's easy for us to kind of really f- just focus on ourselves and the stuff that, you know, our family or our little community or me, myself and I have to get done. Uh, I think it's, it's more important maybe than ever to be mindful of like, all right, maybe who are some of those names of people that are, are feeling lonely or struggling right now? What could I do to reach out? Just do something. Like, I guess is what I yeah. would say. Yeah. And, and let's end this way. Uh, what would you say pastorally or just to, to the person out there right now who hears this and they're not thinking, how can I help someone else who's lonely? They're thinking instead, I'm really lonely. Like I, this, I'm not looking forward to Christmas. They might not be alone, but they're not going to be able to see family, whatever else it might be. I think a lot of yeah. people are feeling discouraged and lonely. What's a word of encouragement or what would you say to the people who are listening right now who are really feeling this right now? Yeah, I mean, the cliche thing that I would say first is that you're never actually alone. You know, the the promise of Jesus is that he never leaves us, never forsakes us, right? That he is with us to the very end of the age that, you know, we mentioned a couple of days ago, the phrase fear not shows up over and over and over again in scripture. And more often than not, it's followed by the phrase for I am with you. And I think mm-hmm. this could be a year for us to really kind of lean into that. I would secondly say, though, and this is this is a, a drum that I've been banging for a while, like, own that you're sad. Like, don't you don't have to, especially if you're a Christian, you don't have to pretend that your Christianity makes you immune to sadness or disappointment or loneliness. I think like owning it, articulating it, and then offering it to God, like saying, hey, here's here's sort of how I'm honestly feeling right now, um, I think is a really important starting point that sometimes Christians get it in their heads like, well, I don't want to seem ungrateful or 
I guess I'm supposed to have the joy of the Lord. Like it's okay to feel sadness. And maybe it would be a good time to, you know, read some of that, read some of the lament and sadness in scripture and let that, let that be an invitation to worship. And I think that that's, that's an important and often overlooked kind of discipline. That's a good word, man. If you're feeling uh, lonely this Christmas, I, I think those are good words. And if we can help in any way, feel free to reach yeah. out to us and we'd be happy to, to pray with you and be any source of encouragement that we can be. Well, coming up next, uh, we're going to be joined by David Hayward. He is known as the Naked Pastor. Uh, we're going to find out all about him and his work next here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. back to the common good here on am 1160 hope for your life alongside ian simpkins my name is brian Fromm. glad to have you with us and we are thrilled to be joined all the way from canada we are thrilled to be joined by david hayward david thank you so much for joining us today thanks for inviting me i'm glad to be here hi it's absolutely our pleasure just uh, so our audience can get to know you a little bit why don't you introduce yourself to our audience well hello everyone um my name's david hayward but you might better know me by Naked Pastor. I'm a blogger, cartoonist, uh, artist, uh, writer, and um, I'm an ex-pastor. And so uh, what I do is I I talk a lot about um, what we call deconstruction, helping people grow spiritually um, beyond maybe what they might be allowed or beyond the confines mm. of the church or um, just to find and discover their own spiritual independence. So I'm often talking about um, our own personal freedom to grow as we want to, but also critiquing mm. those structures or systems or powers or whatever that try to control us and keep us back. So basically that's the content of, of a lot of what I do online. Well, and David, just to say it out loud too, I've, I've used your cartoons in, in numerous ser- sermons throughout the years. So like personally, I'm grateful for, you know, your perspective and the way that you see the world and the way that you convey things artistically. You're also a writer and it just went live today. You wrote a blog called The Nativity Scene and The Powerless. I was just having a conversation about this yesterday. Could you tell us a little bit more about what you were going after with that blog? Well, it, it, um, it's, I drew a cartoon years ago where, um, it's the nativity scene and, you know, it's, I don't, I don't often try to draw really fine art kind of cartoon drawings. They're very sketchy looking. And um, mm. so I, I drew this cartoon uh, because I, I had preached sermons in the past when I was a pastor of the nativity scene. And Lisa and I, my wife and I, we have this rough hewn wooden, plain wooden nativity set that we will set up at Christmas. And it's just very rough mm. and austere, you know, and, and, um, and I, I, it just struck me one year how absent the powerful were yeah. from the nativity scene, the, 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 the birth story of Jesus. In fact, the only way they are present are as antagonists mm. or adversarial mm. to the, the baby Jesus and the, the gospel and everything. So I wanted to, I drew, I drew a cartoon of, of the nativity scene with Joseph and Mary who were basically nobodies and um the shepherds who were basically unclean and sheep and cows and you know manure and <laughs> and a baby and three foreigners you know um and so i i in that cartoon i just asked where are all the important people 
And uh, it's very, very popular. A lot of people love that cartoon. So I thought I would just give a commentary on it, how, mm-hmm. how um, I think the gospel writers were very intentional in, in portraying the, the, the advent of Jesus as belonging to the poor and the disenfranchised. Mm-hmm. And you said that people have really resonated with the with the post and also the cartoon. I, I, why do you think they have resonated with it? And what's the takeaway, um, whether it be uh, this is something we need to learn from it or this is the challenge to the church of today? Yeah. So the challenge is um, like, for, for example, I'm right now, I, I just finished reading Cohn's um, The uh, Cross and the Lynching Tree. And I yeah. just started reading Thurman's book, uh, Jesus and the Disinherited, and mm-hmm. um, just powerful books written by black authors um, and theologians who really, in a, in a very articulate way, um, portray how the, the gospel has sort of been turned upside down to favor the powerful and the privileged yeah and those at the center, um, whereas the, the true gospel story, and, and for example, this nativity story, is, is very much where the poor and the disenfranchised and the disinherited and the marginalized and the lowly are actually at the center of the story. So, you know, mm-hmm. personally, a lot of people resonate with it personally because m- most of the people I know feel powerless mm-hmm. in the world. And right. for the church, it's a challenge to remember that it's the the lowliest of the lowly who are actually the apple of of their god's eye you see that's hmm. that's the whole point of of uh what i'm trying to get across is hmm. that it is the poor and the marginalized and the disenfranchised who are the deepest concern of the gospel so i've i've wanted to ask you this for a while i'm i'm really fascinated by what your process is because when i when something happens in the news or in culture in the world you know, there are a couple of avenues that I'm thinking through. Sometimes I'll think, oh, we should really tackle that on the show or, mm. man, that's something that will be really helpful in a, in a sermon context or maybe maybe a, a Facebook post. But, you you know, you use cartooning, you use your artistic capacity mm. to, to say something. There's depth and there's meaning there and people clearly resonate with it. But they are also often funny. But sometimes it's like funny with a bite, which is like my – that's my particular flavor. I'm like, oh, yeah, I let that – I think – disarms people like what is your process like do you see something in the world and think oh i need to draw or do you like draw first you're like oh that really resonates with what's happening right now or, or is that a little bit of both yeah i i um i very seldom plan i don't have a plan so it, it often <laughs> it, it just they just pop into my head i see a picture or something so for example the, a cartoon the other day that i did um of uh jesus and the disenfranchised um, where Mary and Joseph are in the stable and Joseph is helping to deliver baby Jesus. And so Joseph and Mary are, um, you know, brown skin. And Jesus comes out pink, white, with rosy cheeks and blonde hair. And <laughs> and Joseph looks angrily at Mary. And, um, and there's no there's no words. But people got the point. Um, that Joseph is wondering where Mary's been and who she's Mm. been with. Mm. And, and I wanted to, I wanted to sort of talk about 
how uh, many of us in our minds, um, uh, you know, and a lot of art down through the ages has depicted Jesus as white, um, blonde hair, blue eyed, um, California Christ kind of thing. And, um, and, and yet, uh, really, uh, that's, that's not the case. And, and so I talked about, um, reverse engineering a lot of our assumptions. And if our assumption is that Jesus is white, um, does that mean our God is white? And, um, maybe he's, we're not, we don't believe he's literally white. We might believe he's invisible, but does he have white values? Mm-hmm. Um, in other words, does he, uh, does God, um, favor the white race and place them at the center and at the top and privileged and powerful and so on, while the rest of the people um, are disenfranchised or disadvantaged or, you know, uh, marginalized or, or things like that. So mm-hmm. I, you know, that I, I didn't plan that uh, the image popped into my head and it's almost like, Oh, should I draw that? It's going to offend people. Um, you know, but there's something inside me that (laughs) just, I have to draw it and I have to, sometimes I have to uh, write a post to go with it. So that's the process. That's how it happens. Sometimes things happen. Um, like, like this year has been, or the past several years has been crazy for many of us. And I, I'll, I'll draw something and, um, you know, in response to what's going on, but you know, I, I can't sit down and plan out the month. That, that just can't happen. It's very mm. spontaneous. That's great. You said uh, at the beginning, you're also known. People know you as the Naked Pastor. I've got to ask the question, how'd you get that name? How, how did that become your nickname? Well, I, I picked the name. Uh, this was years ago, like back in 2005. I thought like at that time, the Naked Chef, the Naked Archaeologist, mm. the Naked Truth, all those things were kind of popular. And I thought, wouldn't Naked Pastor be cool? Where I I, I would convey, because at the time I was a pastor, pastoring a, a real local church. And I thought, um, I wanted to write a blog post, uh, a blog about the real life of a pastor, not the joys mm-hmm. and the victories and all the triumphs and attendance and tithes and offering, all that kind of stuff. I wanted to talk about what really goes on behind the scenes, mm-hmm. uh, honestly and vulnerably transparently. And so, um, I, I got naked pastor and, um, I didn't, I didn't expect it to take off like it did, but it, it really did take off. And, and, um, you know, when I left the ministry in 2010, uh, I struggled with whether or not to keep the name, but mm. a lot of people convinced me to, because many people believe that I'm still doing kind of the work of a pastor, but mm-hmm. online. So I, mm. you know, I call myself a virtual pastor, <laughs> but uh, it's, it's kind of, uh, that's just what it means. There's nothing risque or, you know, restricted about it. It's all pretty PG, but uh, it's just about me being transparent and honest and real. Awesome. I think there's something to that too, because I've, I've certainly gotten some messages over the years from people I don't know that have said, Hey, thanks for being my digital pastor. And I think, I think you are really onto something because I think that's a, it's a space that in a lot of ways, you know, could use some pastoring. And I, I was sharing with you during the break that I actually showed uh, one of your one of your pieces. Uh, this is probably a year ago called Eraser, where in the image, there's a bunch of people with pencils drawing boxes. And then there's Jesus with the pencil upside down and he's erasing those lines. And right. I just found the image so powerful. But when I use that in a sermon, I don't think an image, at least in my experience, has garnered so much 
like positive and negative feedback at the same time. I'd be curious, why do you think that is? Has that been your experience? I mean, you're the one creating this art. Yeah, I, you know what? It's hilarious. Like Eraser is probably my most popular cartoon. Hmm. And, I, and so I draw a cartoon and while I'm drawing it, I'm thinking, of course, this is true. And, you know, and, and I, I, I draw it and I, I might be thinking about that verse where there's um, um, Christ is through the cross, um, destroyed all dividing walls. And, um, and so I think, well, this makes sense that uh, there's no dividing walls between us, no barriers. How can I draw that? And so I, I thought of pencils and erasers. And so I drew it. But yeah, I mean, some people love that image and some people hate that image so it's it's uh it's baffling to me that an image can stir up so much encouragement and also um animosity at the same time right, it's pretty right. pretty incredible and, and when you draw so like you said you don't have it all planned out when you draw are there ever times where you say uh i that one people can't handle that one or maybe that one's going to get too much criticism. Does that ever happen to you? Or are you like, you know what? Nope, this is what I'm, I'm, I'm feeling I need to do and put it out there and whatever happens, happens. Well, you know, a lot of people think I'm pretty fearless and um, brazen and radical and all that. But really, I'm a nice guy and <laughs> I love people and I like to get along. I hate conflict. And I, I just want everybody to love everybody. <laughs> and uh, so when, when I draw these cartoons, I'm very, sometimes I'm really scared when I mm. press the send button. Like I'm, 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 I'm really nervous about what's going to happen. And, mm. you know, uh, it's taken me a long time, but my thin, my skin is thickened. Uh, I do get a lot of hate mail. Um, but I've even turned those into, um, you know, memes where I, I have a nice pretty picture and then in 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 the picture I'll I'll put a quote of somebody who sent me some hate, hate mail. <laughs> and uh you know uh like the other day I posted one this is the what is this crap yeah what no <laughs> WTF is this crap and you know so it's I I make fun out of that too so you know it's it's all entertainment yeah <laughs> <laughs> I've seen some of those. It really does kind of stop me in my tracks because, you know, when you're sort of doom scrolling through Facebook, you get it's kind of predictable. And then you see this like nice flowery picture and it says, what is this crap? Signed to Craig. And I'm like, that's, that's amazing. And I, I, I would be really curious to know, why do you think art or maybe specifically your art evokes such emotion or maybe broader? I think art in general does this in a way that like blogs and in a lot of cases sermons don't like what is it about art that like speaks to something deeper in us yeah um well i call myself a graffiti artist on the walls of religion uh, on mm. i love graffiti and so if we might think of somebody like banksy who's very popular um and some people don't feel he's a real um you know graffiti artist but rather a street artist or something but mm. just for argument's sake uh, there's a lot of people who love Banksy's work and think it's incredible and they crave it. They want it, you know, and, and a lot of his stuff gets stolen off of walls and so on and end up in auction somewhere. Right. Um, but a lot of people are really offended by his work because it challenges the status quo. It challenges authority. Uh, it, it challenges the system. And, and so people who are interested in and benefit from the system are, are offended by those things, whereas those who are oppressed by the system love it. And, and so I think the same 
thing that happens with a lot of art, including my cartoons, those people who are interested in preserving the status quo and preserving the system and the institutions and all those things that claim to protect us and serve us, um, they, they get offended by these things. Whereas those who have suffered under these systems, including the church, those who have suffered from it or been abused by it or have been disregarded by it or rejected by it, um, they love these cartoons because it's speaking their language. Yeah. Mm. Uh, I really appreciated you had a, a Twitter thread just yesterday, uh, 10 reasons why I appreciate the church. As someone, like you said, who used to be a pastor and is also yeah. speaking a lot of challenge to the church and what you see going on, why did you feel like it was important to write about why you appreciate the church? Well, because, um, yeah, I was, I was, I even, I was nervous. That was one of the most nervous ones I posted. <laughs> Because a lot of people are like, what the heck? Yeah. Like, I thought he criticized the church, and here he's saying he appreciates the church. I was really nervous about losing some people. Hmm. Um, uh, but I, I, I just wanted to clarify for a lot of people. A lot of people assume I hate the church. Mm-hmm. I've left the church, given it both you know, fingers, and, and, and rejected it and left it. But, but truly, the, the fact is that I have a deep appreciation for the church and want to see it succeed and to do well. Like, I mean, mm. can we, let's do church, but can, can we please do it well? Can we do it mm. in a healthy manner in a way that actually serves people? Um, and, and so that's, that's what my concern is. So I feel I'm still in the game. I'm not exactly, um, you know, this at the center for sure, but uh, <laughs> I, I feel like I'm still involved and still have a voice and, and still trying to, make a difference with the church in the world. And so I wanted to just make that clear. There are reasons why I left the church. There are, mm-hmm. there are wounds I can show that the, that the church has inflicted on me, but I have a mm-hmm. lot of appreciation for the church and I believe the church should exist mm-hmm. um, and will exist. And um, I just would love to see it um, do well. Wow. I really appreciate that. David, I'd love for you to take just a second and let people know where can they find out more about you, Twitter, social, your blog, your artwork. Just hit us with all that information. I am almost like God. I'm everywhere. I mean, <laughs> I'm, I'm on. I, just, just Google naked pastor. Make sure it's one word. If you do two words, you're going to see things you can't unsee. <laughs> but, uh, go to, I'm on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, YouTube, Pinterest, TikTok, you name it. I'm there. And, uh, and nakedpastor.com is of course my home base. And from there you can find everything. Awesome. David, we're so excited. We've been really excited to have you on again. His name is David Hayward, also known as The Naked Pastor. Uh, we'd encourage you to go to nakedpastorstore.com, find stuff for Christmas as well. David, uh, let's do this thank again you. sometime. This has been really fun. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you, brother. Thank you. Thank you very much. Absolutely. You're listening to The Common Good here on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Ladies and gentlemen, it's time for some... Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. I'd encourage you, if you just missed the interview we did with David Hayward, otherwise known as The Naked Pastor, please go ahead and get our podcast and you can catch up on that. Uh, I don't know how you felt, Ian. I found that to be really fascinating. What a, what a fascinating uh, individual he is. Yeah, if you're not following him on Twitter, uh, highly, highly encourage you to do so. I think, you know, this is in the same way that I've often said that, like, comedians may be the closest thing we have to modern day prophets. Mm-hmm. I actually think in certain fields like cartoonists are a close second. There's something yeah. about 
seeing something in a cartoon form that sticks with you, you know, and sometimes a lot of his stuff has, you know, no words included at all. And just seeing the image, you know, he talked about like a racer, you know, like that communicates something profound without using any words. And I'm just, I'm endlessly as someone who like works in words, I'm always fascinated by what can be conveyed without them. I think it's fascinating. Absolutely. So yeah, I, I wasn't following him on Twitter. I started following him as we were talking to him. So yeah, you can find him uh, at naked pastor uh, on Twitter and Instagram, Facebook, all sorts of different places. And if you missed the interview, go uh, check it out on the Facebook, uh, on the Facebook page or on the podcast. So one of the things we've been doing since the pandemic, something Ian introduced is uh, just some good news stories, a lot of heaviness right around the pandemic, around politics, uh, church scandals, all sorts of things that we find important to talk about, but sometimes it could just be really heavy. And so every now and then, uh, we like to just end the show with some good news. Uh, these are particularly from a website that uh, Ian told us about called the goodnewsnetwork.org. That's goodnewsnetwork.org. So I have a, a couple different stories posted here, Ian, that I'm excited for us to go through. Why don't you start us off with whichever one you'd like to? Wow. Thanks for that freedom, Brian. What an invitation. So this one from December 8th, which is just yesterday, it says what started as a joking bake-off between dads led to 15,000 cookies being delivered to essential workers. This has this has all the elements of a great story. It's got dad humor. It's got cookies. It's got essential workers. It starts off by saying whether their play of choice is a team sport like basketball or football or something more mono a mono like tennis, chess, or even video games, some men are hardwired with the instinct to compete. Yes, to the victor belongs the spoils, but perhaps equally important, he who wins has bragging rights. So it's not surprising uh, this, this, so it's not surprising this, the spirit of competition, I feel like that might be a typo, has spilled over into the culinary world as well. While they may not hold up to the task in real life, there's many a home chef who dreams of beating Bobby Flay, taking top honors on Cake Wars, or being crowned a chopped champion. This past April, when Huntington, Pennsylvania dad's 58-year-old Scott McKenzie and his buddy 42-year-old Jeremy Uhrich, Uhrich. Uh, found themselves embroiled in what could be termed the cookie wars. Neither man realized what began as a friendly competition to see who was the better baker would morph into something that would have major positive impact on their community at large. I'll let you go and read the uh, the rest of the article, which is sort of covered in the headline. But at the very least, though, I appreciate because there's a lot of people that are doing like really intentional, strategic things mm-hmm. to like give back or to counteract, you know, some of the negativity that we're experiencing. I, I like stories where they kind of accidentally yeah. fell into this thing. Like, well, it started off sort of as a friendly competition and now it's actually become something really meaningful. I, I love stories like this. Yeah. The next one writer starts a pandemic pen pal project. Now 7,000 people are mailing joy to strangers with wow. letters from the salutation. My dearest love to the signature line yours in breathless anticipation to the final postscript PS you are forever in my heart. The art of letter writing has been all but forgotten in this current age of instant communication. Between tweets, IMs, Instagram, Zoom, and the granddaddy of them all, email, the demands of our fast-paced world have rendered the quaint, antiquated, and frankly, slow form of missives dismissively, dismissively known as snail mail all but obsolete. But thanks to the concerted effort of New Yorker staff writer Rachel Sim, the pendulum may have begun to swing back. 
With much of the world in lockdown thanks to COVID-19, many have been forced to pivot in a way we conduct our daily affairs. Working from home and homeschooling uh, may offer freedom from the daily commute and perks of wearing PJs in the board meeting, but the isolation can be overwhelming. To combat the disconnect and loneliness many of us are feeling, Sim got the idea uh, to resurrect the time-honored tradition of pen pals. It all started after buying an old school electric typewriter. She found herself using it not to write prose, but to compose letter upon letter to friends and loved ones. And the the way this has gone, her subsequent Penpalooza uh, initiative, which she set up using secret Santa software, courtesy of Elfster, is gaining some real traction. It already has more than 7,000 participants and the list is growing. If you're interested in it, you can see the article there. But yeah, you know, we've talked about this, how uh, kind of all that we're going through, people are longing for for things like a handwritten letter or a handwritten note. So it doesn't surprise me, but it warms my heart that this is kind of taken off. Have you ever had a pen pal before, Brian? I have never had a pen pal. How about what? yourself? No, I haven't. Yes, yes. You gotta. You should make this, make 2021 the year you get a pen pal. Okay, I'm in. All right. Here we go. This high school opened a campus grocery store and students pay in good deeds. Amazing. When most of us make a trip to the grocery store, we pay with credit cards, cash and coupons. But for a unique supermarket that's been set up at North Texas High School, the cost of staples is good deeds. And the change, human kindness and valuable life lessons. The unique enterprise set up with the aid of Texas Health, Albertsons and First Refuge Ministries has been a boon to the students, families, and faculty that form the close-knit Linda Tut High School community in Sanger? Sanger. Sanger? I think it's Sanger. Sanger, Texas. Students purchase goods via a point system. The currency is based on completing criteria such as helping clean up around the school and forms of positive reinforcement. A lot of our students come from low socioeconomic families, school principal Anthony Love said. Well, Last name, name, Love. That's perfect. <laughs> Tony Love, what's up? Uh, it's a way for students to earn the ability to shop for their families. Through hard work, you can earn points for positive office referrals. You can earn points for doing chores around the building or helping to clean. There's a whole lot more here, but I, I hope we see more and more of this, man. I yes. think this is this is such a smart initiative. Yeah, this story was crazy. I saw this on the Today Show the other day. Missing boater rescued 86 miles from shore, clinging to capsized boat. I thought right. that was it. You know the world's most interesting man? Well, I'm just the opposite, 62-year-old Florida resident Stuart B. told the news reporter. Interesting or not, when B. and his 32-foot pleasure boat, the Stingray, uh, went missing from Port Carnival Marina in Florida last Friday, he, uh, last Friday, he became the focus of an intensive ocean search and rescue mission. B. experienced trouble earlier in the trip. Figuring he'd be able to fix it himself, he didn't radio for help. He'd fallen asleep Sunday night after tinkering with the motor, only to be awakened by a gush of water flooding the cabin that pushed him toward the bow and out through the front hatch as the stern sank. That was sometime after midnight. An experienced sailor, B, knew he was in real trouble. Once the stingray stabilized, he made several dives back inside to try to retrieve his personal locator beacon, but to no avail. Unsure how much longer he'd be able to hang on just after sunrise, B was preparing to make another attempt when he caught sight of a cargo freighter aptly named the Angels. So it goes on to say how he was saved just hanging to the front of the boat. An amazing story. But why would his boat be called the Stingray? His last name is B. Why wouldn't it be called like the Honeybee or something like that? I would like to ask him that question. (laughs) Bothers me. That's your that's your big takeaway from that story. Okay, here we go. Let's let's end on this note. They canceled their big wedding, but took a five thousand dollar catering deposit. And serve Thanksgiving meals to the needy. Wedding events last a few hours. Marriages are meant to last a lifetime. (laughs) 
I like that it says marriages are meant to last a lifetime. That's <laughs> yes. <laughs> Come on, Good News Network. Uh, in the wake of COVID-19, though, although disappointed by the necessity of having their big day significantly scaled back, some special couples have been able to embrace the bigger picture with open hearts. Such was the case for Chicago residents Emily Bug and Billy Lewis. Originally, the pair had planned fairly lavish nuptials, but as the pandemic wore on, rather than wait to wed, they eventually decided to trade in their upscale plans for a small ceremony at City Hall. Love may have won the day, but it did uh, but it did leave the newlyweds with a conundrum. What to do about their non-refundable deposit and wedding-related purchases? I didn't even think about that. There's probably a lot of stories like this. Some things like the dress and the DJ were write-offs. However, Bug and Lewis decided that having their health and being together more than made up for those things and all was not a loss. The reception venue agreed to let them put their deposit on hold to be used for a future charity event. And the wedding photographer shifted gears to record the couple's small but heartfelt city hall ceremony for posterity. That left a $5,000 catering deposit, but rather than roll the money into an event to be named, Bug and Lewis decided instead to spread their joy uh, to to others less fortunate. Again, we're out of time here, but this is this to me is, again, a great example of people thinking creatively on their toes, not just for social media shares, but in a way that like gives back. And I, I just love, I love people's willingness to look at circumstances that would otherwise bum out most of us, you know, at the very least to do something really beautiful with it. I love it. Absolutely. And so we love to end with some good news. Hopefully that puts a smile on your face. Go check out the good news network.org and you can find these stories and many of them like it. Well, we've enjoyed having you with us today. Join us tomorrow from four until six for Ian Simpkins. My name is Brian Fromm. You've been listening to the common good on AM 1160. Hope for your life.